All right. Well, we want to welcome those of you watching online to Plum Creek Chapel, and we are continuing our study of the greatness of God. And it's a busy time of year, so we didn't meet uh, last week, and we won't meet next week. And for those of you here, uh, you know, we'll we'll make sure that goes out in the newsletter. But um, we're trying to get as many Wednesdays in as we can with the busy holiday travel. I'll be in Dallas next week, um, but. Uh, just want to encourage you to always check out our podcast. We do several a week, and if you haven't watched the ones from Sunday, those are available as videos as well. You can get those at PlumCreekChapel.org or at uh, NotByWorks.org. Uh, and uh, on Wednesdays, we are talking about uh, the greatness of God right now. We've talked a lot because of my books, The Spirit of the Antichrist, about Satan's plan and the cosmic struggle between good and evil and all that Satan's trying to do to usher in the one world system. And we just thought it would be good to, to spend some time focusing on uh, the greatness of God. And so uh, we looked uh, in the previous couple of weeks at uh, the attrib- some initial attributes of God. And we're just going to continue that tonight, uh, talking about some new attributes. So by way of review, we said the attributes of God are those distinguishing characteristics of God's divine nature that are really the essence of God. Some people, like Dr. Ryrie, calls them the perfections of God. And the first one we looked at is God's eternality. God's eternality. And we said that um, passages like Job talk about how God is great and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. Or Uh, Moses put it this way in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, In Genesis, uh, Abraham planted the tamarisk tree and he called him El Olam, God everlasting. Uh, And so that led us into a discussion of divine timelessness. And uh, hopefully that was helpful. We spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, the odd temporality of God. And we said, if you think about God as being in, in the abode of eternality or the timelessness, if you will. Then he spoke the world into creation, which is when he created time, space, and matter. And so mankind exists within the bubble of God's eternality. And this is one of the reasons why, the primary reason why, it's so difficult sometimes to reconcile man's way of thinking with God's way of thinking. You know, how can God be sovereign over salvation and yet man be free to choose? Well, any system that tries to reconcile those two things ends up off base. They end up overemphasizing God's sovereignty, like Calvinists who say you don't have a choice. God has to choose you. If you are not elect, you couldn't be saved no matter how bad you wanted to. Or if you go to the other extreme, then God becomes impotent and you are the one that's really saving yourself and God has no role in it. But when you understand the fact that God is eternal, then it kind of helps us reconcile those types of uh, Thing. So the eternal God exists outside the bubble of the created universe. And that's just a helpful picture to keep in mind if we think about that, that diagram. Then we said God is also self-existent. Uh, we looked at this one last time, I believe. Uh, he is independent in his being. He, he does not depend on anyone or anything else. In fact, everything else in the universe depends on God. You know, the plants depend on rain. A child depends on his parents. Uh, Animals depend on their surroundings and so forth. Uh, so, for example, John 5, 26, for, he, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he purchased 
eternal life for us through his death, resurrection, uh, death, burial, and resurrection, and then he offers it freely to everyone who will receive uh, the free gift of salvation. Uh, famous passage in Exodus when God is calling Moses, um, and he said, Moses said to God, well, when I go to the uh, Egyptians and, and the Israelites in Egypt, and I say, who shall I say sent me? Um, you know, he says, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. I am has sent you. Um, and then we looked at Daniel. I think this is where we left off last time, actually. So uh, as we think more about the uh, f- fact that God is self-existent, Daniel's passage in Daniel 5 comes to mind. Uh, this is the context where Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. Do you remember that? And it says, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and then, and the God who holds your breath in his hand has, in his hand, and owns all your ways, you have not uh, glorified. And then in Acts chapter 17, as Paul is speaking at Tamar's Hill, we read, For in him... We live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So God is self-existent. We depend on him. He doesn't depend on us. He's not reactionary. He's not responding to, to, to things as they happen, wondering what's going to happen next. He is completely independent. Remember, there never has been a time when God didn't exist. So by definition, everything he created... Uh, is dependent on the Creator, and so, but God exists existed for eternity uh, before He spoke the world into existence. So the application here would be this: because God is self-existent, He's not obligated to us in any way, unless He obligates Himself by His Word. He, he is trustworthy; He cannot lie. Uh, Hebrews tells us. Uh, so we can never make God beholden to us. So this is why those arguments that we have with God or those conversations that we have with God that begin with, you know, God, it's not fair, or God, you should have done this, or why didn't you do this, all of those are flawed from the very start. We certainly don't want to go down the the fairness road with God, do we? Because if God were, were fair and completely just, then every one of us in this room would spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. Because God warned us, if we sin, that's the punishment. And yet we still sinned uh, anyway. But God's attributes include not only His justice, as we shall see, we'll get to justice down the road, uh, but also grace and mercy. And so in His grace and mercy, He gave us an undeserved gift, that's grace. He kept us from getting what we deserve, that's mercy. And He kind of helped us out when we got ourselves in that uh, predicament. So, uh, you know, when we think about God, it's, it's hard for us to think of someone who is not dependent on anything. You know, sometimes we might think of wealthy people, independently wealthy, people with billions of dollars. And we think, well, surely they're pretty much self-existent, right? They don't depend on anybody. But how many times have we seen, even recently in the news, where billionaires... One minute they're on the top of the world, the next minute it all comes crashing down because they're dependent either on maybe they broke a law and all of a sudden law enforcement comes and arrests them or uh, the economy crashes or you know one thing or another. So no matter what type of independence we achieve, we can never claim self-existence. God is 
completely not dependent on anyone or anything else. So any question about God's self-existence? Okay, number three is God's holiness. Holiness. God is holy. He is set apart in a class by Himself. He's the only one who is impure, who is, who is pure and clean. Um, holiness is more than just the absence of impurity. It's the very standard of purity. And God is distinct. There's no one like God. We see several passages that attest to His holiness. Um, for example, Psalm 99 is a great uh, psalm. It's an anonymous psalm about God's holiness. And it repeats that refrain. Uh, verse 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Um, we touched on this a minute ago when we talked about His independence or self-existence. But there's no, there's no one like God. That's what holiness means. Set apart. One of a kind. Um, by the way, notice how in the Psalms here it repeats He is holy. Many of the Psalms do that. Many of the Psalms, which are songs that the Jews sang on various occasions, are quite repetitious. And I always like to point that out because sometimes today people hastily criticize contemporary Christian music for being repetitious. That's not the problem with contemporary Christian music. If there is a problem with it, it's simply it's doctrinally unsound. As long as it's doctrinally sound, it doesn't matter if it's repetitious. Otherwise, we'd have to rip all the psalms out of our Bible. In fact, uh, look at, uh, I think it's Psalm 150. Let me get there. But do you see my point? You know, we want to... I understand that a lot of contemporary music is not that good, uh, either musically or lyrically. But let's be sure to clarify, like, yeah, Psalm 150. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him. Praise Him. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 times in six verses. It repeats praise Him or praise God. That's pretty repetitious, right? Does that mean this is a bad song? Of course not, right? So I get that we, we tend to pile on sometimes with contemporary music, and there's a lot of bad contemporary Christian music out there, but it's not because it's repetitious. Nothing wrong with repetition, and it's throughout the book of Psalms you see repetition. Uh, but let's look at some other verses. Isaiah the prophet put it this way, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. There is none like God. Isaiah, on the occasion of his prophetic calling, he said he saw the seraphim crying out to one another, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. Remember we talked about in Hebrew when you repeat things, it shows emphasis. Especially, you know, you see it frequently whether it's repeating just once, but to repeat it three times shows particular emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. When's the last time you contemplated the Lord and just sat there and thought, holy, holy, holy. No one like Him. Yeah. What's the word for holy? You said it means set apart. Mm -hmm. Are there other words in the Greek or, or the Hebrew? Hagias is the Greek. I'm not sure what the... I'd have to look up the Hebrew. It's been a while. Are there other words that have humans set apart? 
Well, yeah, so sanctified is a term that means set apart for a particular purpose. And that's all through the New Testament. So the Christian is positionally sanctified once and for all the moment we place our faith in Christ and we now are a child of God. We're sanctified positionally. We are being sanctified progressively as we become more and more set apart into Christ-likeness and apart from the world. So that's set apart. But holy means set apart in a class by yourself. You're one of a kind. That's the idea. Uh, back to Isaiah, or staying with Isaiah. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Don't you love that? Whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place. So, you know, as we think about the greatness of God, He is transcendent, as this verse implies. But what's so amazing about our God is that He's also imminent, meaning he, He's approachable. He's among us. He, Of course, He... He sent His eternal Son, who is God, God exists in three persons, uh, to put on human flesh and come and, and, and be with us physically. Um, but He's also you know, always with us. In a moment we're going to talk about um, that concept of God being uh, everywhere at the same time, not omnipresent, but His infiniteness. They're similar. Um, in Exodus, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods who is like you glorious in holiness fearful in praises doing wonders so you see this repeated connection between no one is like you and holiness that's the idea um, and uh, and then Leviticus for I am the Lord your God you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy we can never be like God or become God, but we ought to strive to, for Christ-likeness. We ought to strive to be separate this, you know, as much as we can from the world's uh, trappings and the world's nature uh, to be different. Another one, I don't think I had it in here. I don't know why, but it just comes to my mind. Is Revelation, 5, uh, Revelation yeah, 15, verse 3. This is the prelude to... The outpouring of God's wrath at the Battle of Armageddon and the, the climax of the tribulation period. And uh, let's start out in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, the bold judgments. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his marks and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For you alone are holy. Uh, so uh, holiness is a key attribute. All of them are equal it's not like you can rank them but in terms of satan's battle for control of this earth you know he can harness all the pagan gods he wants they're all ultimately satanic because there's only one god that's why jesus said you're either for me or against me there's no middle ground you can't be just a little bit satanic you know you're, you either are or you aren't right and so you know someday uh 
at the end of the age, uh, when all is said and done, Satan will be defeated. Uh, in fact, I was just reading that passage today, 1 Corinthians 15. I thought it might come up in the interview that I did today, but it didn't. Um, maybe this is why the Lord had me read it. 1 Corinthians 15 is that great chapter about the resurrection. Remember, Paul was addressing some people who uh, were denying the resurrection of the body. And he, he ties the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead to the believer's resurrection. And remember he says um, in verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most pitiable. In other words, there's got to be more than, than to this life than just this life. You don't cease to exist when you die. There is a resurrection. Uh, and so, picking it up in verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep there is a euphemism for dead. For since by man came death, in other words, Adam is the uh, author of death. He's the, you know, uh, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So for since by man came death, by man, capital M, that's Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Christ is the, the kind of the leader, not necessarily talking about in order, although it is you know, in order if you don't count Lazarus. But he's, firstfruits here means like the, the, the leader, the example, the, the one who's heading this whole thing up. Uh, first fruits afterward those who are Christ that's you and me at his coming and now here's what the part I wanted to get to verse 24 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be destroyed is death for he will put all things under his feet uh, that's Psalm 8, I think it's verse 7. But when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Not, in other words, not everything but God. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So what time period is this talking about eschatologically in the end? Anybody know? When is it that... Uh, Christ will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, including death. The end of the millennium. Very good. She's a lot smarter than you. That's the problem. So, No, I, I would have thought the second coming too, because it says, um, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. And it just seemed like it was talking about Christ reigning and all that. But this is a key passage that talks about the distinction between that millennial phase, I don't have the chart up, but the millennial phase of the kingdom and the eternal phase. Remember how I always talk about the kingdom is eternal, but the first thousand years is on the old earth, and then the, it continues after that in the new heavens and the new earth after everything is destroyed? Well, when he's, our key to understanding this is when he says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's one key. Well, we know people will die during the millennium because Isaiah the prophet, I think it's in 65, says... A child, a, a person will die at the age of 100 and will be considered a child because we live long, people will live longer than. Now, 
we won't be dying because we'll be in our glorified bodies. And it's my view that even believers won't die. The only people that die in the millennium are unbelievers. But that's beside the point. The point is there's death in the millennium. So this period of time can't be including the millennium. The other key indicator that we're talking about the end of the millennium here, as uh, Judy uh, said, is verse 28. Uh, when the Son hands the kingdom over to the Father. Uh, is that verse 28? Let's see. Uh, yeah, and also verse I skipped verse 24. Verse 24 is another key. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. See, Christ is ruling with a rod of iron during the millennium. And we're ruling and reigning with him. Remember Luke 19, he puts us in charge of different parts of the of the world and so forth. But in the eternal state, which we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, the Godhead takes the throne. It's not just Christ, it's the Godhead. And there is no night, there's no sorrow, there's no sea. There's no reason to rule because there's nothing to rule. We're all in perfect harmony in the sinless eternity. See, Rulership requires that you have things to keep in check. Well, in the eternal state, there's no sin. So, uh, and, then, and then verse 28, when, he, when, he, uh, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things over. So he hands the kingdom over uh, to uh, oh, the verse 24 is where he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So this is talking, by the way, not about Christ being somehow uh, in, in, in his substance or his essence different from God, because Jesus said, I and my Father are one, and that's the doctrine of the Trinity. But in, in terms of subordination, you know, Christ and everything else is subject to the one God, you know, Almighty. There's no... There's no uh, competing agendas competing rulerships and things like that so anyway i don't know how we got off on first corinthians 15 except that uh, we were talking about uh, from revelation 15 when when the at the end of the tribulation christ comes back but then at the end of that he gives it all back to god the father so let's uh, let's talk about god's holiness uh, in terms of application this means God's holiness means that our sinfulness is exposed. See, you, you, you know, we, when we see ourselves in light of God's holiness, it really just shows us who, who we are as flawed human beings, right? Um, we can try to give it different names. We can just call it weaknesses. We can call it limitations. We can call it whatever we want. But at the end, it's sin. And the term sin, among other things in Scripture, the most common one in the New Testament, hamartia, means to miss the mark. So we fall short. We miss the mark of, of God's standard, of God's holiness. Um, and it also means that we have to remain separate from God until the stain of sin is removed. That's what the atoning work of Christ is all about. If it weren't for Calvary, God would be holy and he is holy anyway, but I mean, God would remain holy and we would not have any access to him because we're sinful. But Christ covers that sin with his blood when we receive justification. Um, that's what Romans 5.1, uh, really all of Romans 5 and 6 are talking about, but look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's the only way anyone is justified, by faith, you believe the gospel and you're declared righteous. That's what justified means. But having been justified by peace, what we have, by faith, what we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have access to God. And, and so that's why um, Christ had to die on the cross. So we are declared righteous by faith and have access to God. We're reconciled to God, as he goes on to say. Any questions about God's holiness? That's probably one of the first uh, attributes of God that people think of. Is, is when you say, what do you know about God? People will say, oh, he's holy. What do you think? Right. Yeah, I think that's why looking at the past. So the question is, uh, so far of the attributes we've looked at, this is the first one where we're told to be holy. Um, well, we've only looked at three, and so there, well, there's about 15 that I'm going to get through eventually. Um, but it is a. So the question is, you know. It must be a different kind of holy. And that's the reason I looked at all these verses that talk about um, God being one of a kind. So he's separate um, in the ultimate sense. So, you know, you can be separate without being one of a kind. You know, I'm separate from you because I happen to be up here and you guys are down there. So we're separate, right? Or you're in one room, I'm in another. We're separate. But so that's why holiness as an attribute of God means more than just separateness. It's separate in a class by himself. Um, again, Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken me? So the, the admonition that we see in both the Old and the New Testament, Peter repeats it, is to be holy as God is holy. In other words, in the same sense that God is separate from everything, we are to be separate from sin and the world and in our practice. Gary. Okay, I made I made your point. All right, that's good. I'll take it. Yeah, we should. I should. Should you should write my sermons? That would be very helpful. Talk about saving time. Yeah, Paul. I know you've talked about this before, but when you reference uh, Romans five one about you know having justified by faith, now we have peace with God. Mm-hmm. Talk about the Old Testament saints again that before Christ, faith justified them as righteous. And, yeah. And, um, but how does this go back to them, or is this from here on? No, no. So the uh, question is about Old Testament saints and justification by faith. Um, you know, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, faith, and was what? Justified declared righteous. Uh, salvation for every individual from Adam forward is always by faith. Now the Old Testament emphasizes primarily the national promises to Israel and you know really the, the first 12 chapters of Genesis are all about the beginnings then you get to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and pretty much the rest of it is all about the story of, of Israel. Um, so it, but, but you do still see as, as in the case of Genesis 15:6, echoes of the the timeless principle of salvation by grace through faith individual salvation by grace through faith so yeah old testament saints were saved the same way we were um and that gets into what we talked about last week i remember talking or not last time uh, talking about the aspect of, of of god's timelessness 
from God's perspective, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, Calvary, the supreme event of all, all time, covered the sins of people past, present, and future. So it, it occurred in the eternal now. So, you know, uh, uh, who were we just talking about? Abraham. Abraham was justified because of Calvary, even though in time it hadn't happened yet. That, that's one of those you know, reasons it's so important to kind of keep this perspective that, that, that God exists outside the bubble of time. So he, from his perspective, it, everything is an eternal now. And so uh, Abraham had faith. So there's, there's the basis for salvation, and then there's the means of acquiring salvation. The basis for salvation in every age is the grace of God accomplished by Christ uh, on his with a shed blood at Calvary. That's no one can be saved without that. Hebrews nine twenty two. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So Christ's atoning work is what makes it possible for anyone to be saved. But the mechanism for receiving that free gift is always faith. And the specific content of what precisely you must believe has changed as God has revealed more. In other words, Abraham didn't believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again on the cross. Died on the cross and rose again. Because that hadn't happened yet. But his faith was certainly in God, the creator of the universe, to provide a redeemer. He knew that he couldn't save himself. Only God can do that. Today, based on what God has revealed to us in his word, it takes more than simply believing that God is the only one that can save me. That's too vague. The Bible is crystal clear that the content of saving faith today is you must believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel by which we are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, rose, was buried, and rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. So, But it's still faith. The, and the content, by the way, of precisely what people have to believe will change again as God reveals more. In the tribulation, they, they'll have to believe something slightly different, and then in the millennium they'll believe something slightly different, but it's still faith. So, well, Christ died in, in the eternal sense for Abraham and for... Right. Outside of time. Correct. Yeah. I mean, everything's outside of time from God's perspective. Christ died as part of, you know, the meta narrative of humanity. He died at a point in time. He died in 33 AD, right? Um, April 3rd, I think, to be exact. Yeah, April 3rd. So, um, but from God's perspective, you know, who's outside of time, it was that same Calvary that atoned for the sins of Moses, of uh, Abraham, and Moses for that matter, but of Abraham. So, um, you can only be required to believe what God has revealed, and today, as the New Testament makes plain, He's revealed the Gospel, which is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. But the point is, that passage that you asked about, Romans 5, 1, that justification by faith applies to anyone who's saved. Anyone who by faith is justified now has peace with the Holy God and, and is, not, is no longer positionally separated. So back to, I think it was Judy's question about the, the holiness. Um, here's where we see that, that dichotomy again between position and practice. And we come back to this again and again in our study of salvation that we are positionally holy, once for all set apart, 
Someday when we stand before the gates of heaven and, and, and God looks at us, He's not going to see the stains of sin, but rather the blood of Christ covering us. So we are positionally once for all holy. We've been set apart once and for all. But in practice, we don't always live like who we are in Christ. We don't always live out our identity in Christ. So that's where we're, we're commanded in Scripture to let our identity, to let our behavior match our identity. So be holy as I am holy. I mean, could have easily said, be holy in practice just as you are already holy in, in your position. You know, we, we are, our citizenship is in heaven. We talked all about all this in, our, in my Thanksgiving message. So, um, so it comes back down to practice and position. Now, the, the holiness of God is another thing altogether because He's one of a kind. But we are ultimately going to be once and for all separated from sin in practice as well as in position. Right now we're still surrounded by sin. Y'all are a bunch of sinners. And so am I, by the way, just to clarify. So we're, we're constrained by sin in this sin-stricken world. Um, and our goal is to walk by faith, not by sight, to conform to the image of Christ, to put on the new man, all of those things, so that we are uh, reflecting the holiness of God. We're separate from the world the way He's separate from the world. So, good questions. Let's talk about another one. How about God's immutability? Who knows what immutability is? Unchanging, Unchanging right. Um, so it would be in, I was just thinking it would be interesting in this age of deconstruction of language and, and changing the meaning of words if they put out a dictionary where they change the meaning of immutable that would be rather ironic wouldn't it um, but God is immutable he's devoid of all change he is unchangeable and therefore obviously unchanging because change always requires either improvement or deterioration right and so God is absolutely perfect, perfect in his absoluteness, you might say, uh, and so he can't change. He, he cannot get better. He cannot get worse. He's immutable. Um, he told us through the prophet Malachi, one of the last, the last writing prophet of the Old Testament, 435 B.C. was when Malachi the prophet prophesied, and he said, For I am the Lord, remember Lord there is Yahweh, the I am, I do not change. In the context, he's saying, therefore, you're not consumed, O Israel, sons of Jacob, Israel, because God made a covenant, and He never turns back you know, on that covenant. Uh, it's an unconditional covenant. That's the whole key. Revel or, uh, Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. So, you know, certainly Israel, like the church at times, deserved to be forsaken and forgotten. And for God to God would have been certainly understandable to throw up his hand and say, what am I going to do with you? Forget it. But God does not change. So you can already see where we're going with the application of this. If we serve an immutable God, we don't have to worry that he's going to change his mind. His word is golden. Um, James tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So, you know, we live in a world where nothing can be counted on, don't we? We're constantly seeing, uh, 
you know, people go back on their word, unexpected things happening, and we just seems like we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. But we don't have to worry about that with God the Father. And unfortunately, most of us view God, this is why I love this study that we're, we're going through, is that we tend to view God through the lens of our human experience. And if you've been let down again and again and again, or you've experienced you know, one crisis after another, or tragedy after another, it's hard for you to really accept the reality that God can be counted on. That He's not going to renege. Right? Um, and Hebrews tells us the same thing about Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's immutability. So we've already kind of made some applications, but God is trustworthy. He can be counted on. Uh, he'll never go back on His promises. Now, God in His Word gives us conditional uh, rules Blessings and cursings, Deuteronomy 30, the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant. It's not an unconditional covenant. It was his own covenant. Separate, conditional. It was an if-then, whereas the Abrahamic Covenant was a I will. It's different. I will do this, period. If-then is, okay, if you do this, I'm going to bring blessings. And we see some of that in the New Testament. We certainly see it in Proverbs with general rules of life. You know, if you follow the way of wisdom, it's going to go well. If you don't, you're probably going to stumble. You know, there are certainly conditional things that are rules for living within the confines of our life. But when it comes to the very attributes of God and who He is, He's unchangeable. Uh, we can take comfort in that. It, can, it brings us confidence. Any questions or thoughts about God being immutable? Yeah. I think I know the answer to this, but uh, when Moses came down from receiving the Ten Commandments. And God said, get away, I'm going to destroy. And Moses pleaded for his people. And then in Exodus 32, 14, it says, so the Lord changed his mind. Yeah, that's the NIV, right? Uh, no, this is the New American Standard. Oh, New American Standard, yeah, changed his mind, yeah. The Old King James says repented, or relented, or repented. Yeah, yeah. and I think, is that just the way man understands what God intended. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. So this. So the question is, uh, Paul brought up a passage from Exodus where when Moses came down and the, they had built the golden calf and so God's you know was going to destroy them, but then Moses prayed and God changed his mind. You see that phrase a few times in the Old Testament. Well, how do you reconcile that with the fact that you know God said, "I am the Lord; I do not change." Well, one option is. God was wrong, and the Bible can't be trusted. God contradicted himself, so he must not be God. I don't like that option, right? So the Bible, this goes back to our, our hermeneutics, what we studied some time ago on how to read and understand the Bible. There are some foundational principles, and that is that God's Word tells the truth. It cannot contradict itself. It is completely inerrant and infallible and trustworthy. So starting with that premise, then we solve these apparent contradictions by comparing scripture with scripture and this falls in what you described and there are many other passages too what about Nineveh remember that's another one um, two or three others um, an example of a figure of speech called an anthropomorphism where God takes on uh, elements of humanity 
it's similar to when God says, you know, you know, I have stretched forth my hand, or um, you know, I'll gather you under my wings, or um, you know, God, the, the the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth. But God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have wings. He doesn't have hands. He's spirit. He's eternal. Those are all created things that God created. So those are a figure of speech called an anthropomorphism, ascribing human characteristics to God. And it doesn't have to be just physical things. It can be other attributes, one of which is we as mankind, we do change. We change all the time. We get better. We get worse. We get, you know, all, all, all kinds of problems. So this is, uh, that, that's the example. That, that, I mean, that's the answer to that. Another example of this is um, Genesis 3, after the fall, when God said, where, where are you? Did God really not know where they were? Because we're going to find out in our study of his attributes that he's omniscient, all-knowing. So on the one hand, you have God asking a question, implying he doesn't know something. In the other case, you have the Bible saying God knows everything. They can't contradict, so the one must be an anthropomorphism. God is just speaking in relational terms that we would understand. So, yeah, you were right. You're, you answered your own question. So, All right. Any other thoughts about God being immutable? You mentioned that God doesn't have eyes or hands. Or anything. Mm -hmm. is God the, we refer to God the Father and He. Does He have a gender? Well, in the Bible He has a gender. Yeah, so, but he the Bible is God's self-revelation to mankind, and uh, gender was created with creation, right? Uh, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, male and female, he created them. So we, God revealed himself to us in ways that we can relate to and understand, and that paradigm is actually referred to often to help us understand human relations, both in the church and in the family and so forth. We kind of follow that pattern. Um, I don't think, you know, God doesn't have gender the way he created gender, but the Bible refers to him as father. Uh, but we will always have gender, by the way. We won't have the physical anatomy of gender. Uh, so the transgenders will love it if they're saved. But in eternity... In eternity, because you never cease to be human. So sometimes people have this mistaken notion when you get to heaven, you turn into angels and you float around and fly around, you have wings and all this stuff. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're always human. We just happen to live in this physical earthly tent of bones and muscle and tendons and blood vessels and whatever. But in eternity, you know, I'll still be human. And because humanity, part and parcel to humanity, is male and female, we will still have that. So you'll still be he, I'll still be he, you'll still be she, and so forth, in eternity. So does that make sense? Yeah. It says we'll see the face of God. Mm -hmm. So you said he doesn't have eyes. What, who knows what that face is going to look like? Yeah. It is blowing, it is blowing our minds, yeah. So the comment was about seeing the face of God. And, and we see that in the Old Testament, too. No one can look on God. No one can see his face. God will turn his back and those kind of things. So those are all anthropomorphisms. Um, you know, you read Revelation 21 and 22 and the description of the throne and the temple and the light. I mean, we don't 
I don't expect God to, to, when we get to eternity, be sitting on a throne with arms and fingers and look like a wise old man. I don't expect that. I'm not, I can't tell you exactly what he's going to look like, but, you know, that, that would be creating God in the image of man. God created man in the image of God. So we have attributes that correspond to God, but God is, is holy and one of a kind. So I don't know. I don't know what it'll be like. But he's not like using his eyes to look, you know, and peer around. I mean, he's everywhere present at all times. He, 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 he sees all, knows all. So think of it this way. We talk about God's omniscience. God knows everything. Does God have a brain? It's an organ just like our eyes. We don't often think of God having a brain, right? A physical brain. But we are comfortable saying he knows all. So why can't we be comfortable saying he sees all without thinking of him as having eyeballs? That's the way I look at it. Blowing your mind, you say, huh? Well, since we're already blowing your mind, let's I'm talk still, about... I'm still stuck on the Jesus crucifixion, but that's kind of like Jacob was saved and all the dozens of time there. Well, yeah, there. and then was he really in the grave? <laughs> No, yes, he was, because that happened within time. So the comment was, you know, uh, Ken was sort of jokingly saying, well, I'm still trying to make get my hands I'm around. You know. <laughs> He's not joking. He really is still trying to get his hands around how the crucifixion, Calvary, paid the price for Abraham. But, but remember, Calvary happened from our perspective within time. Jesus literally left the realm of eternity, came to the realm of time, space, and matter. He literally was born on a day. He literally grew up. He literally began his ministry. He literally served for three and a half years. He was literally betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified. All that, ha that did happen. He was in the grave three days. But from a theological perspective and an eternal perspective of atoning for our sins, it was that supreme event of human history that, that paid the price for all mankind's sins. Just the mechanism for receiving it was uh, you couldn't you didn't have to believe that Jesus died and rose again because he hadn't had that had happened yet from Abraham's perspective, but God knew that based on what happens in the eternal now, that was going to pay Abraham's price. So again, there's the basis. This is really important to understand. There's the basis for our eternal salvation, which is the shed blood of Christ. Then there's the means of receiving that that gift. That's faith. You can receive a gift without understanding the basis behind it. Right? Someone gives you a gift. You might not know that they had to sell something and save up their money and then they had to go to 10 stores to get it. They eventually bought it and they had trouble finding the gift. You don't understand all the basis behind the gift, but you, you accept the gift. So we now, this side of Calvary, we have the benefit of that supreme event happened within time, and we're on this side of it. From Abraham's perspective, it hadn't happened yet. He saw glimpses of it. God foreshadowed it, for example, with Isaac and the Mount Moriah and, and the, all of that. You know, that was a picture, a foretaste of the ultimate sacrifice that God was going to provide. But um, another reason, since we're talking about it anyway, uh, another reason that this concept of, of Calvary happening from God's perspective in the eternal now is important 
is because as it relates to our experience on earth as believers, there are those that will tell you if you sin after you get saved, you lose your salvation. Well, we know that's not true for a variety of reasons based on comparing Scripture to Scripture and the doctrine of eternal security. But just think about what that would mean for Calvary. So how many of, from, from, from Christ, from the perspective of the day Christ died on the cross, from that per, thinking about that moment, how many of your sins, each one of you in this room, how many of your sins were future? Every single one of them. So why would that sacrifice be enough to pay for all your sins up until the moment you pray to receive Christ, but not enough to cover the ones that you commit after that? No, they're all covered. So his, his de death paid for sins past, present, and future. Abraham's and everyone before Abraham, Noah, you know, and ours, and anyone in the future. They're all, the payment's been made. The question is, have you received that payment? Have you, signed, have you endorsed the check and deposited it in your account? That's the question. Once you've done that, all your sins. Colossians 3, he's wiped out uh, our, let me get there, something about nail him to the cross. My brain is fried today. Um, Colossians chapter uh, 2, actually. Uh, you being, verse 13, you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, you know, I'm not suggesting for a second that it's okay to sin after you've been saved. That's the whole doctrine of sanctification and growing in Christ and, you know, being holy as He is holy, there are consequences for our sin. But we never have to worry about that somehow if we sin after we get saved, that's the one thing Christ didn't pay for in eternity past. No, he, all of our sins were in the future from, from that perspective when you think about it. Yeah? This whole concept of time and timelessness is really, really difficult for a human being. Absolutely, it is difficult. So, taking that Calvary and putting it into the eternal, you can also say that everything that was prophesied and everything God's plan is already, already happening. Yeah. He's reigning on the throne, Satan's in hell, uh, in eternity, not in time. Yeah. It's hard to... It is, and that's why we go to... So the comment is, if we think about Calvary as being in the eternal now, and I think your term was taking it out of the, the now and putting it in eternity, can't we do that with everything else? And that really all of God's prophecies and God's plan, all that has already happened. Well, it, it has from God's perspective. Remember, and I keep going back to this, it, God exists outside the bubble of time. I've lost my chart already. Uh, so God is not subject to time. He created time. Remember, we talked about before time began. God spoke the world into existence. In the beginning, that's time. Beginning of what? There was no beginning in eternity by definition. So in the beginning, God created the heavens, that's, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. So time, space, and matter all began with the creation of God. But going back to Romans 11, 
and I know we've talked about, we've referenced this verse frequently. It, it brings me great comfort, and I, I hope it does you guys as well. But Paul, Paul writes at the end of chapter 11, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 there. In other words, who can understand God's way of doing things? Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you just have to rest in, under, in, in knowing that God is eternal, but don't try to figure it out. Does, you, does that mean we're in heaven already? Are we in heaven already? Well, um, I don't know. It depends if the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Um, so, <laughs> Ken said, well, you're married to me, honey. You're married to me. Isn't that heaven? Um, no, we're, we're overthinking this. Um, when, when, when we talk about God's eternality, um, if you try to reconcile these two things you see on the screen, eternality with, the t with, with temporality, you end up, you, they cannot be reconciled by definition. So if you try to reconcile them, you end up, like Calvinists do, totally camped out in the realm of God's sovereignty. And therefore, it's, it's fatalism is what it is. That no matter what, you're either in or you're out. You hope you're lucky, you know. That sh that there's no causality. There's no uh, d determinism. You know, God just determines it all. And even though they don't actually live their lives like that, Calvinists, I mean, that's that's their view of salvation. If you're elect, you're in, and and you will of necessity believe the gospel through no choice of your own. It just happens. God forces you to believe. And if you're not elect, forget it. You're going to hell no matter what. But that's that's God's perspective. And we live in the realm where God clearly gives us in His Word the choice. You can either believe the gospel or you can reject it. And if you don't believe the gospel, Jesus says you're going to die in your sins. So it's unbelief that sends people to hell, not non-election that sends people to hell. So, yeah, uh, Gary. So, Abraham... Correct. Moses the same, Isaiah the same. Adam. Okay. So tonight's the first time I've heard this Calvary connection to the salvation of people prior to Christ. And that it's a little hard to grasp. And I'm thinking of the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Isaiah show up prior to Calvary. You're thinking the Mount of Transfiguration, and what's yeah. the significance of that? Well, no. Well, Moses is there, Isaiah is there. Yeah. Prior to Calvary, they were already justified by faith. Yeah. They must have been in heaven with the Lord and then came down at that point. So right. I, it's that Calvary connection that still goes Well, that's the, the only reason they could be in heaven and be transfigured with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration is because of the shed blood of Christ. No, I thought it was because of faith. You're, you're confusing the basis of salvation with the means of receiving salvation. The basis of salvation in every age from Adam forward is the shed blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. 
for the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Somebody had to die. Some blood had to be shed. That's the reason that in the garden, what's the first thing God did after Adam and Eve sinned? Killed an animal. They'd never seen death. They had, that, that must have been shocking to them. They'd never seen death prior to the fall. Never. They were eating plants. Right? And here's this blood and sacrifice and skinning. And wow, that's, that really woke them up to the, 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 the uh, seriousness of their sin. So, but on what basis did you think Abraham would be in heaven? His faith is how he receives it. But faith in what? I mean, you, you, yeah, yeah. and how did God accomplish that? Well, God is Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, and he talked to him. He died again. He knew it was in his heart. Yeah. No, so Abraham believed. There's no question. That's the only way anyone can receive salvation. But the basis, the, the payment, think of it in terms of a payment. Who paid the payment for Abraham's sin? had to be a payment, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Who died so that Abraham could believe God and be justified? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus died. So they all waited until Jesus died? And somewhere between earth and heaven? No. From God's perspective, that had already happened. All they're responsible for, all any human being is responsible for is believe. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. 160 times. That's all we have to do. That's all so, any Old Testament saying. So they believed. They believed. That's right. But, but somebody had to die to pay that, to, to, to give them something to be given to them. Remember, he purchased life with his own blood. Right? So... Yes, there's no question that Abraham believed, and that's, you know, it's somewhat semantics. That's what's confusing. You say, on what basis was Abraham saved? Well, on his faith. Well, that's true, but it was also on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, right? It's also on the basis of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, you're still in your sins. We just read it a moment ago. So basis can mean a lot of different things, but the point is, in order for you to be able to believe and be saved, somebody had to die. Who died to pay Abraham's sins? Ultimately, Jesus. And God, the eternal God in eternity past, understood that, knows that. And it was on that basis and that basis alone that Abraham could believe and be saved. Right? And your point about the transfiguration just makes that point. You know, How could Abraham be in heaven if the sins hadn't been atoned for? That's what the whole sacrificial system of Israel foreshadowed it just reiterated again and again blood has to be shed somebody has to die a payment has to be made atonement you know that's what the day of atonement was right they didn't understand the, the details of it because it hadn't happened in history yet but god did so they you know abraham understood that you know god would uh, provide a lamb you might say that he did that hadn't happened yet that was some 20 years later but i mean god Abraham understood that somehow God is the only one that can pay the penalty and, and give me eternal life, and he believed. But from God's perspective, it was the it was he was always looking at the cross, 
when he forgave Abraham and gave him eternal life, when he forgave Noah or Adam or Moses after Abraham, in every case, God's looking at the shed blood of his eternal son and granting them eternal life because they believe. So it's a difference of the basis for eternal life and the means of receiving eternal life. That's why we talk all the time about how Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Unlimited atonement. Right? Calvinists believe in limited atonement. He didn't die for everybody. He only died for the lucky ones. Right? We believe he died for everybody. But you don't. that doesn't mean everybody's saved. Right? Just because Christ died for the sins of the whole world, not, not everybody's saved. That would be universalism. We know there's people that go to hell. That's quite clear from the great white throne judgment, the sheep and the goats judgment. So the basis for salvation is the shed blood of Christ, but only those who receive it by faith get to appropriate that. And Abraham did. So, um, But you know, Christ died for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. He didn't die just for the sins of the people that came after him. Right? That makes sense. You understand that, right, Gary? Yeah, he had to die for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. So he didn't just die for the ones living at that time. Otherwise, we'd be in trouble. Right? If it's hard for you to get your hands around how Abraham got saved because Jesus died on the cross, it should be equally hard for you to, to get your hands around how we can be saved because Jesus died on the cross. World doesn't just mean the world at that time. It's every human being that ever graced this planet only can approach God through the shed blood of Christ. And that includes Abraham. See, before tonight, I believe the whole world, that aspect, aspect of it didn't exist until he died and rose again. Then, that's the deal. So how did people get... So the comment was... Before tonight, in my mind, I was thinking only from the time of Christ forward, that's what the world meant. But how did people before Christ get saved? Yeah. They got saved by faith, and that's the means of receiving it, like everyone, but on the basis of the shed blood of God Himself, God in the flesh. See, God took the first move. That's what the doctrine of redemption is all about. God made us, and then He bought us. Right? You know, you've heard me probably tell the story of the little boy that made a boat out of wood with his dad in his garage and got it all finished and painted and he took it down to the creek with a string on it and was playing within the creek while he lost his grip and the boat floated away. And I uh, thought he'd lost it. And one day he's walking downtown and Main Street and he sees this boat in a, uh, a uh, thrift store. His boat. And he went in and he told the owner, this is my boat. He said, no, it's not. You want it, you're going to have to pay for it. He dug out his allowance, paid 50 cents for the boat, and as he's walking away, he says, little boat, you're twice mine. I made you, and now I bought you. And that's what Calvary's all about. For the sins of the whole world, not just from that point forward. Otherwise, the people before Calvary would be in hell. But it was the atoning work of Christ. That, and again, it goes all the way back to, I, I think we, I preached a message, uh, I think it was here, on uh, the scarlet thread of redemption or something like that. And I traced the blood, significance of the blood, all the way from the garden when he sacrificed the animals, all the way forward. That's the reason, uh, you know, Cain's sacrifice wasn't acceptable. You know, he gave fruits and tomatoes and everything, and, and Abel gave a, a blood sacrifice. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but not with Cain. So you see, 
the blood, you know, from a linear timeline, again, focusing in on the circle from the timeline. Yeah, the Old Testament people like Abraham and Moses, they didn't understand the details, but they understood that God would atone for their sins and only he could do it. But from God's perspective outside that bubble, it was the supreme event of all mankind, Calvary, that, that happened. It happened from our perspective at a moment in time, but from God's perspective, it had already happened. We live in the eternal now. It's on that basis that anyone can, by faith, receive eternal salvation. Yeah? The first five verses in the Gospel of Jonah, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I've got a cross-reference to uh, that verse 4 to John 5, uh, 26, where Jesus is saying, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. Right. Yeah, so Christ is life. He And I've talked about this frequently. And when we did our little gospel par, uh, uh, diagram, I talked about how only Christ has the authority to give life because God gave it to him to give. But I mean, he's there from the beginning. Oh, yeah. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, yeah, this is, it all comes back to trying to make sense of the, something that can't be made sense of. God exists outside the bubble of, of temporality. Um, so... We understand, Calvary, that it happened at a moment in time. We understand it happened you know, centuries after Abraham, 2,000 years after Abraham, but yet it's on that basis that all sins of all mankind were, were paid for. Past, present, and future. Had Christ not died for the sins of the world, and by the way, it was, as, as we read in Hebrews, uh, it was at the appointed time that Christ came in. Um, God, who at Hebrews one one, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the worlds. Who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His purpose, and upholding all things with His power, when He had by Himself uh, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So there it is, sat down, uh, purged our sins. But that happened at just such a time as this. There's another passage that I can't think of. I thought that was it. That talks about at the appointed time when God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin. Um, anyway, so you know God's got this plan of the ages. That think about it in terms of the rapture. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen, but at an appointed time, it's it's going to happen. But God already knows from God's perspective. All that's already planned out. So knowing that his eternal son in eternity was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, on that basis, that's that key word, the basis of salvation, he then offers it freely to anyone, and Abraham, by faith, received it because God had paid the penalty for mankind. So great stuff. I don't know about you, but I'm loving this. Uh, you're probably thinking, why did I come tonight? But... Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Well, let's, uh, let's finish it up. Uh, we'll just leave it there with 
God is immutable, then we'll blow your minds even more next time with the infiniteness of God. But don't, I don't want, the whole point of this study is to just fill us with awe and wonder at a great God. What a great God. We serve the greatness of God. Don't to go home tonight and stay up all night trying to figure out, you know, how can be eternal and this and that. Just rest in the goodness of God and He's, he's, uh, he's a powerful God. So no, we will not meet next week. And then we will re- meet one more time before Christmas, and then we won't meet until the new year. So, uh, but watch the email announcements. And uh, any closing thoughts before we finish up? Yes. Um, will you redeem this night for us? Yes. Okay. Something profound but not complicated. Yes. Okay. I think if God showed up right now and explained every answer to every question we had in great detail, we would not understand. Yeah. I think if you look at me super genius that's ever lived, they were totally lacking in so many normal skills. Yeah. And I think it boils down to that, uh, you know, he's like, this is as close as you can get. Yeah. And look at it, read it, always. Yeah, for the right. for the recording uh, and for the live streamers, Justin said, if God showed up right now and tried to explain every uh, answer every question we ask, I don't think we'd understand it. Yeah, don't forget, this is God's way of saying, here am I, look at me. So you'll notice every one of these attributes it's loaded with scripture. All I'm doing is surveying scripture and coming up with attributes of God that God has told us are, are who he is, told us about himself here. Um, Romans 11 makes it clear that we can't understand everything about God. He's God. We're not. There is a God. You're not him. But, but rest in the fact that he's a good God. He's a good father. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's unchangeable. He's all these things uh, that we're talking about. Next time I teach through this, I'm going to start with the easy ones, like gracious and merciful and loving, and then we'll get to these later. But I just, to me, as a theologian, this is the way my mind works. I think about these foundational truths first. But uh, anyway, thank you guys. Have a great rest of the week, and uh, we'll see you next time.